You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Joby Warwick has been a reporter for the Washington Post since 1996. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his journalism and for his book Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. He's the author of The Triple Agent. His new book is Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. Thank you for joining me, Joby. It's a pleasure, Rick. Good to be with you. It's often said that journalism is the first draft of history. You have been banging out some journalism even before we started speaking. Could you talk about how you know when the news stories you write are actually, I would think of them more as anecdotes because they just really just show a photograph of what's happening at any moment. When do you know that those news anecdotes have the material to become the kind of story that you wrote about in Red Line? That's a really good question, Rick, and I really appreciate uh, being able to spend time with you. But yeah, that's that's a it, it's both a humbling thing to think about as journalists because we tend to have overinflated egos and we think we're important because we're covering important things. But often, as you say, exactly what you cover on any given day is a snapshot, subject to revision. Actually, so it's not even a good snapshot. It may be a if if it's a rather rough first draft. And often with the stories that we, we find that we were scrambling on deadline to, to get information, and you just find out later on that it, you're just wrong, or the facts were just wrong, your sources were wrong. And that's a, a continuing challenge for daily journalism. And, and as you mentioned, I just in the last few minutes, you know, met a deadline on, on a story about Islamic State. It has to do with uh, interrogation of, of the former, of the current leader and some records that have come out. But for, for a book, or even for, you know, a substantial piece of writing for a magazine, you do need time, uh, time not just to let things percolate a little bit, but time to, time to really get at the details and to understand the sources. Because in journalism, we're all you know, kind of captive to the people that tell us information. And if you don't have time to kind of circle around or triangulate and figure out you know, who has a motive or who has an ax to grind, and who really is pre presenting you know, facts uh, as they should be presented, you know, until you can do that, until you can really assess that, you don't know how accurate your, your story is. And that's why I, I've loved doing these books because it means, you know, for me, it's meant having time off from the, sort of the daily treadmill of, of journalism and to be able to get deeply into a subject and to understand what it's really about and try to, try to, to make sense of it for readers as well as just for myself. I have to say that as I, just from the very first paragraph, Redline hit me as an exceptional work because you managed to, to capture, I think, in, to use the tools of the novelist to the ends of the journalist. And you are a master at both. In the very first paragraph of that book, you capture a character so well and so compellingly that the anybody I think who picks up this book is guaranteed to want to finish it just to find out what else is going to happen and how you're going to unspool spool all the threads you begin. So talk about this character and when you met him in the the writing process. Yeah, I, I love what you just described because 
you know, I do feel that I, my special place and my special privilege, because it, it is a privilege, is to be able to, to, to be a journalist, but also to tell stories and then to sometimes to use the techniques of a, of a fiction writer to, to, to make the story more effective. But, you know, as a journalist, that means a lot of work. I mean, to be able to recreate moments, to mm -hmm. re recreate dialogue, you know, weather conditions, atmosphere, you can't just bring that out of your head. You have to do the research to, to understand exactly what happened. Yeah. So the story that you mentioned, this anecdote, which I, I, I fell in love with, it's sort of the backstory of, of the Syrian chemical weapons saga. It's a story that takes place way back in the 80s with this spooky spy, this uh, chemist, um, you know, weapons scientist that the Americans recruited way back in the 80s to help them understand what Syria was up to with its chemical weapons program. And I had, you know, I heard little bits and pieces about this spy, you know, not initially as a spy story, but as from people who are just telling me that, look, we know a lot about Syria's chemical weapons program. We've known a lot about it for years. And our, our intelligence was exquisite, was a term that was used why was it so good? Well, as I kept pulling at these threads, I discovered that there was actually a reason for this good intelligence, and it was a single individual, a guy who came to uh, to America as a kid, as a as a Syrian exchange student, um, loved America, really appreciated our culture, goes back home, becomes you know a master of weapons of mass destruction, but then also wears his additional hat as a CIA informant. And that story is, is was one of the most fascinating single details of the entire exercise. And I I just use this as, as, as a true prologue, setting up the small story that illuminates everything that happens later on, all of it surrounding a secret weapons program and the CIA's special window into it and the figure of, of one man. You know, one of the things I think that you do really well in this book is you're a master of creating like short character sketches that set us up to understand not only the character but where he fits in the larger story. So when you were writing this book, talk about where, how you created, you know, the arc narrative has the arc of a novel, not a happy one, <laughs> unfortunately, but mm -hmm. it has that power and that drive. So talk about when did you determine the that master arc to fit in the characters or did the characters come first and what did they reveal that part arc well this is yeah this gets to sort of the central part of, of my process which I'm, I'm happy to talk about because it is a challenge you know and and most journalists don't have to worry about this challenge because you're got a you know a a lead the, the first part of the story and then we're the middle of the sort of the substantial the background uh you know the documentation and maybe an ending if, if you have time but for a very long complicated piece you really need to structure it. if you want to bring the reader along with you you have to give them a story that makes sense as a story and that's really hard because there are storylines in this book um, that don't really intersect very well there are people in the book that don't know each other at all in fact one of the interesting things for me about writing the story and then writing the book and then giving copies to sources is a lot of them will come back and say, gee, I never knew about any of this other stuff. This is all brand new to me. So it was kind of cool that I knew things that they didn't. But to, to plot it out, I mean, my crazy exercise, if, if you could have seen my walls, I, I'm in a basement office right now. I've got another room. It's kind of my workout room, but my thinking room too. is covered with whiteboards. The whole room is, is just 
one big whiteboard. And a lot of the process was like, draw this out. Here's this character. Here's the, the plot line that happens, you know, based on the real things that, that, that took place. But here's this other layer of activity and other characters that intersect. And, and just sometimes just visually writing things out on a big whiteboard was my way of, of making sense of organizing a very complicated story. And then those outlines become like the, the, the thread on which I hang chapters and, um, and kind of create dialogue and, and movement. And, and so it, it takes a lot of time. Those <laughs> whiteboards get very messy because I keep you know, racing things and redraw them and, and redo them and find new information. And that just, just changes everything or, or just slap myself in the head and realize that I, I just forgot something essential. So it's, it's a really uh, very much an organic process that changes almost by the hour sometimes. You know, um, this story too, one of the things about reading this is there are a lot of revelations in this that that weren't made at the time. And also the lens of just a, a few years really provides a, a wider scope here. So talk about, I mean, when I remember when all, all this was happening, most people do to a certain extent, but what, what you do is by going down into the story you give us a much deeper look and it's really terrifying what happened so tell us a little bit about um the beginnings of the syrian uh program and the decision to do something about it yeah good question because everybody you know the conventional wisdom when we think about syria first of all americans don't want to think about it at all it's just horrific conflict that's going on in another part of the world that most people can't in America can't point to on a map. It's frustrating. It seems to be endless. And the thing people remember about it or think they do is that that uh, President Obama committed some terrible blunder with his red line speech and and uh, and fail, failing to have a missile strike in response to a chemical weapons attack in Syria. What I was able to, to reconstruct was that this was a very, very, very complicated situation. There are actually two red lines. There's the one we think about the political statement, but the real red line in Syria was the existence in this country of a weapon of mass destruction, a real one, not the fake one that we had in Iraq that we thought we knew about but didn't, but a serious, dangerous um, chemical weapons arsenal with enough sarin, and to remind listeners, sarin is this horrifically deadly substance that 26 times more deadly than cyanide, um, and it's portable. You can put it on a truck, you can haul it across the border into Turkey, up into Europe, and just a few liters would be well more than enough to kill you know, thousands of people in a, a, in a ballpark or a, or a subway. So the fear that, that US officials had, that Israelis, the Jordanians, the Turks, everybody in the region had, even in the early months of the Syrian uprising, was holy cow, we've got a real problem here because there's this terrible arsenal, this terrible weapon that exists in this country, and if anybody gets their hands on it, it's going to be bad news for the entire world. So that's this essential drama. It's not just the politics of what we do about this this country and stop this this terrible suffering, but what do we do about this ticking time bomb that everybody thought was going to explode at some point? You know, one of the things that is difficult to do, I think, but sure, masterful at, is creating a, a a narrative rife with tension and it's really fascinating for us as readers because we will have a really split personality experience of it as we read your book we're immersed in the events we're immersed in the characters and it is 
terrifying. But simultaneously, we're thinking back to the time when I think, well, you know, there's something happening in Syria. You know, it didn't happen here. Okay, good. I've got bills to pay. So talk talk about um, your experience of just like discovering these, these are, this is some really scary stuff that almost happened and actually did happen. Yeah. So talk about, you know, just for example, the, the very, your research on the very first attack, the one that, that launched all this, mm-hmm. talk about describing that and, and the way you write the details, it is exactly like something I might expect to read in a Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and as well researched with the characters and caring about the people. That's what you make us do. It's not, they're not just like somebody in a foreign country. They are individuals. And, and for example, Chemical Hazem, who was there at the attack. I mean, this is yeah. scary stuff. One of the things I, I, I hope I do well and I try to do well is, is to be genuinely curious and, and to want to understand a, a person's personal journey. And so when I met someone like Chemical Hazem, this character that shows up early in the book and, and, and it shows up throughout the entire book, here's someone who experienced these things firsthand and, and his life was changed by them and, and rarely talked about it to anyone. He's not a big figure. He's not a politician or somebody who's well-known. He was this kind of small guy in the middle of a big war who had an interesting perspective on everything. And when we connected... I just, I think I convinced him or, or, or was able to, to persuade him that I really cared about his personal story. So we spent a lot of time together and, and the details that come out in, in, the, in this piece of this description of this chemical weapons attack that takes place in, in March of, of uh, 2013, a, a lot of it is from the eyes of someone who was, to him, that was one of the most important things that had ever happened. And in addition to what I learned from him, I have because we live in this age where everything is recorded and taped at some level, there's so much material out there. I wanted to to describe in detail the death of a single woman, not you know hundreds of people and and sort of anonymously killed in, in an attack, but one person that you can kind of relate to. And I was able to tell her story because everybody around her at some point took a video of something, and I was able to get all of those that her her. The poor woman, after she's afflicted by the sarin bomb, she gets taken to a medical clinic where she's getting worked on. And people are taking pictures and they're taking video of the doctors doing their work. And later on, as they're waiting to get into Turkey, waiting for this the Turkish border to open so they can bring her across to Turkey to get treatment. You know, her friends are, are talking about their frustration and they're taking pictures of it. And then later on, she dies. She's uh, her autops Her body is autopsied in a Turkish hospital. That is 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 uh, filmed as well, and I was able to actually get the photos, the, the images, video of her autopsy, and then that allows me as the as the storyteller to to use all of these little bits of color and detail to tell what otherwise would have been a very dry account. But but I saw them all, and I saw them all because other people witnessed them, and they preserved the record, and I was able to obtain those. Wow. I- you know, we think about all the ubiquitous surveillance and ubiquitous cameras that everybody has, and it, it seems like it's just downside. But also, as a storyteller, this must, I mean, it's a huge bounty for you. But on the other hand, you wrote a 300-page book that's a, 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 a page-turning, toe-tapping <laughs> narrative. That has, you have to have accumulated, like, 
probably thousands of pages of details and then select those details and, and put them into that tight narrative arc. Did you start out with a, you know, an a, a 1100-page version of the stand and then cut it down to uh, 300 pages? You know, I almost more often have the opposite problem, which which is um, probably maybe strange and unusual to you know unique to me. I don't know, but um, I, I have the, I guess one of the things I do is is I really whittle down the story to its essence, and that's a discipline. That's like okay, well, that's, I know all this stuff. I know all this, enough stuff to bore you to tears, but what is going to be the, the, the details that will count? And for me as a writer, um, and I know you're, you're a writer as well, and so this, this hopefully this maybe makes sense to you too, but there's a, there are a lot of sort of self-talk, self-conversations that go on, which, which involve in me, I've, I've got some woods behind my house with some lovely trails where I can go for a walk and take my dog and, and sometimes think out loud. You know, I put headphones on so people don't think I'm talking to myself, but just to, to, to sort of narrate the story as though I were telling it to my mom or to a best friend, you know, what is interesting about this? What, what's the essential story? And it kind of falls into categories. You think about, well, in a way there's a murder investigation going on. A, a war crime was committed. People were killed. And in a way, this story is, is, is an attempt to, to figure out who the killer was and why he did it. So that's one part of the story. The other, there's another narrative, which is a race to stop a bad thing from happening, to keep ISIS or another terrorist organization from obtaining really dangerous weapons. So that's a storyline, too. And so often the sort of the conversations I would have with myself in organizing my thoughts was just, you know, what's the story I would tell just to, to, to a friend? And that gives me a kind of discipline to, to leave out all the details that I know but really aren't very important or just to summarize them because I do know them. You can kind of just hint at them but really focus on the, on the key details that make the story move along. Because in a way, it's if, if you haven't engaged people, then you haven't succeeded because you know anybody can look up a Wikipedia article and, and kind of get the gist of what happened. But to really bring readers with you, you have to tell a story to them. And so storytelling becomes the primary thing. You just have to figure out a way to do it that captures your own imagination, but hopefully communicates or, or translates to, to the folks you're trying to reach. Well, you know, that's one thing that we, you're talking about a murder investigation and then, you know, the prevent the big event from happening. I mean, those threads really work well and, and parts of this book really seem a lot like a, you know a forensic there's a lot of kind of forensics in this and, mm -hmm. and it's really interesting so you capture our interest using crime narratives uh narratives from crime fiction and narratives from you know thrillers but it, what you write is <laughs> far far more terrifying than other stuff because it's actually true so i i think that uh talk about separating out the threads the these different threads and then do you have them do you have each like little sub storyline laid out in your on, on your whiteboards and then kind of draw them together or do they kind of fall together as you write the book you know the the, the hardest part is the stuff that falls out and and i think you might relate to that because oh, yeah. not just that you kind of sometimes you, you fall in love with material because it was hard to get i mean there are things that i figured out during the reporting of this book that 
I was just utterly fascinated with, but I ended up having to get rid of them because I just knew that it was going to be a tangent and, and people might not follow it or might not be as excited about it as I was. And the other part, if you're reporting, you're spending a lot of time with people and you're, and you're getting into their lives and you're getting their story. And there's some people that spent a lot of time with me and gave me a lot of stuff and they're not in the book at all. And I feel personally bad about it. Sometimes your instinct is to like, well, I should work them in some, somehow, some way, because they, they were just so nice. And, um, but, but in the end, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit more ruthless than that because you you do have to kind of decide what's what's important and what's not. And so, yeah, those those little subplot themes, you know, you have your major arc and you know you're going to go, you're going to start here and you're going to end up here. And then these other little storylines intersect here and there and either they elevate or illuminate the plot or they don't. And that's kind of the, the brutal decision is what illuminates the major storyline and what really is is itching and and fascinating maybe to me but most people won't really care about and unfortunately those things get cut out and sometimes not even written and that's more like more often the case in, in my in my process uh, well given that the tautness and the tenseness of the narrative i can see that and i think that by leaving those people and those facts out you serve them better because you keep us focused on the overall event and give us a much more detailed um, understanding of a, while also giving us an emotional investment in it, and that's what's really important in news is to get us emo- to care about this stuff. Because I can tell you, nobody's going to read this book and not think about Syria again. You're gonna be, it's going to be right in your foremost. And when you see like the little story, something might have happened in Syria for me from now on. That's going to be sent through this magnifying glass of the book you wrote. And wow. to, to see more, which is, I think, the intent and really helpful to us. <laughs> yeah. Now, I have to add to this, if you don't mind, is is that one one thing that is a little bit tricky is there is a lot of forensic stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of technical detail in the book, and and a real challenge for me, and I think as, I guess for any writer is to is to tell those those technical details without completely boring people or overwhelming them. And there's, you know, there's, you know, there's a mechanical device that shows up early in the book and then becomes kind of a, a major character in its own right. We call it the Margarita machine, but it's this invention that, that came out of a, an obscure part of the Pentagon um, that was created in the event that the Americans somehow got their hands on chemical weapons in Syria. This was the machine that was going to get rid of them. And it has a really wonky name. It's very complicated to describe, and yet it's a star character. So I had to make it not just not just kind of you know, comprehensible but also kind of fun you know as as a as a thing to learn about and um and that was a challenge that's hard to do but i, I hope i didn't and maybe you could tell me this but i i hope i didn't lose people in the technical detail because i, I really just wanted them to understand what was essential without getting lost in the fact that this is a physical process that's a little bit complicated no in fact th- this brings to mind something else in this book so just to kind of remind myself and others, we have a chemical attack in Syria. People are cl- clearly killed by by sarin. Um, Obama makes a statement about the red line. We ha- have to do something. A- and uh, so what you do is you go back and, and when you take us 
to Tim, is it Blake's? Blades. Blades, Blades, yes. He's a man, he's done work for the government before. And what you create for us, and (laughs) this is so great, is that this book has the absolutely classic ragtag team led by an iconoclastic inventor who's good at one thing, but that one thing is going to be the one thing that's going to solve a very large problem, which in fact it does. So talk about Tim Blades and you must have spent quite a bit of time with him. Yeah, I did. And I feel privileged to have done that because he's, you get the sense in the story. He's not an easy guy. He's not somebody that's (laughs) kind of fuzzy. And, you know, the first time I met him, I, I wondered if, if we would ever have a relationship in the sense that he would be willing to work with me uh, because he got the sense he didn't really like reporters very much. He's a little suspicious about my project. But, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We actually toured the Cape Ray, which is this big boat that ends up being kind of pivotal, like kind of an important part of the story as well and got on it together with him and the captain of the ship who'd been, you know, the, the part of the voyage too. And, and then just went out for drinks and went out for dinner and then met again for breakfast and then, then visited his base. And, and just over time, just little bits of information at, in just, you know, in each visit to kind of add to the, to the volume of what I had. And you get the sense that here's someone whose entire life kind of led to this moment. He had spent, his entire 40-year career with the government in obscurity, doing some really interesting and sometimes dangerous things that nobody would ever hear about. And then history turns his way. And there's this moment when the U.S. government calls on 10 blades from Edgewood, Maryland, to, to save the world from this chemical weapons threat. And he's the one person who's figured out this is a machine that can do it. We don't have to haul this stuff out to some, you know, to build some big expensive, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, incinerator to to destroy chemical weapons. We can do it in this little machine that will fit inside of a couple of tractor trailers and we can put it on a boat. We can operate it in the middle of the ocean and we can make the world safer by destroying chemical weapons this way. Nobody else in, in the U.S. government, as big as it is and all the expertise that's there, figured it out. But Tim Blades did. And Tim Blade's little secret is he never finished college. He's this guy that grew up, you know, wanting to be a dairy farmer because that's what his neighbors did. He worked on a dairy farmer at farm as a kid. And he just by accident ends up getting a job at this military base where chemical weapons were being uh, initially built because back in the Cold War, we used to make our own. And then later on, this was the place where they were destroyed. So he understood the chemistry, the process of getting rid of chemical weapons because he'd done it his entire life. Here he was being asked to do it on an international scale. He stood up and said, I can do this. Nobody else knew better because nobody's had this kind of experience. And so they said, okay, Tim, we trust you. We're going to give you this, this budget and this boat, and we're going to send you out in the middle of the water and, and hope you wor- hope it works. And it did. It, it, was, it was one of these things that, you know, a million things could have gone wrong. And some things did, but essentially the process works. And, and so Tim Blades becomes this hero, this, you know, guy who at a blue collar, you know, Eastern Maryland figures out the, the, the solution to this massive problem. And, and, and just, you know, you have to be thankful for guys like that who can do it. The, the, this whole process, I thought you did a really good job of building up him 
and his relationship with the captain of the ship. So just to kind of take readers through, just leave out the exciting parts of the story of how you get there at, at this point in the narrative. Um, Siri ha, has very reluctantly, and the way you cover the diplomatic process is also equally fascinating, decided to say, at least pretended to say, well, we're going to give you all these weapons. Now, they have, the serum they had was enough to kill the entire population of Norway. <laughs> so yeah. that that's like 23 million people. That's a lot. Uh, so talk about... Um, the relationship you build between the captain of the ship and also the way you interweave both the politics and the kind of forensic hardware aspects of this because I think you did do a great job with the margarita machine because you describe it well enough so that we can see it in our mind and it does look exactly like, you know, kind of like something that Dr. Frankenstein might have made on a different, you know, on an off day working for the Navy. And you can just see these scenes inside the ship with this giant machine and, and all the tubes everywhere. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's interesting. In the reporting process, um, the captain of the ship, a guy named Rick Jordan uh, from Louisiana, was one of my first discoveries because as I was trying to figure out the story and the, the major elements of it, I came across his name. Um, he was listed. He ended up getting a government plaque at some point because he was, you know, on the ship and he was captain at the time of this mission. And I, I just reached out to him on LinkedIn. I said, Hey, you know, I, I'm fascinated with the story. Can we talk about it? And he's one of these really super gregarious Southerners who's great at telling stories, but does it, you know, as a as a as a normal guy, not some wonky, you know, Pentagon guy, but somebody who who just got the big pieces of it and was able to just tell it as a story. We really hit it off because we had some things in common and we just kind of seemed to like each other. And he becomes my entree into this world. Because of Rick Jordan, I get to meet Tim Blades because they're good buddies now. But he was also this kind of common sense character who who is stripped of all the, the bureaucrat, uh, bureaucraties and the technical jargon and just sees it as a guy who's driving a big boat. And, and his common sense perspective on this whole thing was what initially fascinated me and, and maybe understand that I have to tell the story of the boat. It was just, to me, one of the coolest things about the whole journey, the fact that this ragtag group, guys from, from Eastern Maryland who had never, never been at sea who would who would never many of them had never been to college, and and they get tapped to to have this incredible adventure and and and, and as well as this sea captain who had spent most of his career in the U.S. Ready Reserve Fleet, you know, waiting for something to happen. But here was his moment too. Someone who was called up out of, you know, at, out of a fairly routine job to to pilot a ship that was going to destroy, you know, hundreds of tons of of chemical weapons at sea. So. It's so, so much fun to, to be able to, to, to get to know those guys and, and to know their stories. You know, there's just so many characters who come up in this book. And, and I think that's one of the, the great strengths of this is, um, for example, tell us a little bit about another fellow who shows up early in the narrative, Ake Selstrom. I mean, this guy is, is fantastic. And, and he's very interesting because he... he He's kind of uh, on the edge about everything he's doing. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to describe him. 
so for the for the listeners um pronounced it correctly from a swedish pronunciation which i don't do very well it's wake selstrom okay and he's a, a professor of, of of medical studies in sweden who happens to be one of the world's best experts at chemical weapons and during the iraq conflict when we were trying to figure out what the iraqis were doing he was one of the guys on the ground who tried to investigate iraqi chemical weapons back when they actually had them and the, the interesting aspect of him that makes him a complicated character He's also a committed pacifist. So he, he understands how these terrible weapons of mass destruction works, but he's also very suspicious of militarism, very suspicious of, of, of countries that want to invade other countries. So he's he's very, very divided in his in his feelings about what, what he does. He's the man that the United Nations calls upon in 2013 to investigate these early reports of chemical weapons attacks. So he leads a team of of international inspectors and weapons experts into Syria in 2013 with hope of going around the country and figuring out if Syria is really using chemical weapons and if so, what should the world do about it? That's his job on this day in August 2013 when he's sitting in a hotel in Damascus and suddenly the biggest chemical weapons attack of the last 50 years takes place outside his window. It's close enough, it's in a, in a village right on the outskirts of Damascus, close enough that he could see the sort of the contrails of the, of the artillery rockets that are hitting this town. He desperately wants to go and investigate to see what has happened. Uh, he's got the experts there to do it. And of course, the Syrians don't want him anywhere close to this. They know what's happened. They don't want any you know outsiders meddling. And, and at the same time, the United States wants him out because, because Obama already knows that a chemical weapons attack has happened and they want to respond militarily. And this Swedish inspector is in the way because how do you as Americans launch a, chem a, a retaliatory strike against Syria if there's still investigators on the ground trying to figure out what happened? You gotta let the fact-finding process go first. So Obama ends up being kind of constrained by this Swedish inspector who, who says, I'm gonna take my time I'm going to somehow get out to these suburbs and see what happened, and I'm going to conduct, conduct my investigation, and I'll come back to you with my conclusions. And he does exactly that. He manages to talk the Syrians into letting him go. On the way, he gets shot at by snipers. He gets surrounded by a mob. He gets threatened at gunpoint at, a couple, you know, at one you know, crucial moment. Terrifying yet, action scenes really well built. I mean, just like something out of Tom Clancy. <laughs> well, thanks for saying that. But it, the great thing is that it was a really dramatic moment because mm -hmm. my favorite moment of all actually with him is so they, they're driving down this road to this village where the chemical weapon attack, attacks have taken place. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody starts shooting at their cars. And they're driving in armored vehicles. But armored means it'll take a couple of rounds from a, from a rifle and then forget about it because the windows start to crack and then they'll break and then you're, then you're in trouble. So after they get shot at, okay, Selstrom and his and his team turn around and they race back to this kind of rallying point, a government checkpoint a couple of miles away, and they sit for a moment and think about, well, what do we do next? Do we go back? Do we go back home? You know, is this over? And he, he talks to his advisors, and one of them, this local UN guy, says, Look, you can go back to your hotel, but if you do that, the Syrians are going to know that they can intimidate you and your mission is over. They're going to know that you can be frightened, and so you know you're useless, and, and this is this is done. And so they all talk about it for a moment, and and they just say, "Well, look, hell, we're going to go back in. 
We know there's a, a sniper down the road because we just got shot at by him. We don't even know what's on the other side of the sniper. But if we don't go in, we're never going to get our mission done. And so there's this great moment where they they take their armored jackets and they put them up against the windows of the car and they just floor it and they just race across no man's land as fast as they can until they get to the other side where, where they can do the investigation. And to me, that's bravery. And that's bravery by people that are completely unsung. They're not heroes in anybody's book. They're just ordinary, you know, UN officials doing like a very ordinary job. And they showed the kind of bravery and courage that that would put most of us to shame. And because of what they did, you know, you know, weeks later, we can conclude with certainty that this was sarin, a sarin attack against Syrian civilians that was responsible for about 1400 deaths. And even though that the, the UN was not allowed to say who was responsible, the evidence so clearly pointed to Assad and his regime that the, it was just irrefutable. You could not ignore the fact that this dictator had killed his own people using a chemical weapon. Leaping far ahead, uh, another pair that really interested me, the, the characters in the story, was were Samantha Power and, and Chur Churikin? Yeah. The, her Russian counterpart, the, the relationship they developed, it's like something out of a movie, the way you write it, just because it, it's so effectively writ, well-written. So talk yeah. about talking to Samantha Power. Did you ever talk to her Russian counterpart? So he unfortunately passed away, but I've talked to other Russians who were who were his assistants and aides. And, and yeah, there's this, this great moment, and I, I love this part of the book, because here you have, you know, this is later in the story where the chemical weapons have been removed, in quotes, from Syria. We didn't get them all. Uh, the Syrians continue to use substitutes for chemical weapons like chlorine, just the, the stuff you put in a swimming pool or in drinking water. They use those as chemical weapons as a substitute. But, you know, Samantha Power being this sort of career-long, you know, humanitarian, someone who really wanted to have an impact on this discussion about chemical weapons, confronts the Russians about what their friend Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, was doing. And although the Russians have been remarkably uncooperative throughout this entire story, have no interest in doing anything that punishes Assad or holds him, holds him accountable, those two, because they have a personal relationship, decide to try to do something about these, these chlorine attacks. And so between the two of them, they come up with, come up with a plan to investigate these terrible chlorine attacks that are taking place in 2014 and 2015, and to really have a, a serious investigation about who was responsible for them. And, and they make it happen. And, and this, these investors, investigators go out, they find evidence, they come up with reports. It's very damning. It makes, makes the Syrians clearly look culpable for these attacks. And all of it happened because of this one diplomat, Samantha Power, and this one Russian, her counterpart, uh, Vitaly Cherkin, um, because the two of them respected each other and, and wanted to get something done. You know, the sad part is ultimately Turkin dies and the Russians end up reneging on all their sort of their goodwill, all their promises to, to really investigate and go back to this reflexive position of defending Assad at all costs. And so, the, you know, the, the, I guess this is the bad part about writing a nonfiction book is there's no happy ending to it because because Assad is never really punished. He's never forced to admit that he used chemical weapons at all. And because of that, 
uh, his intention is, is, is never changed. He still is willing and able to do whatever he can to kill people in his own country when he feels like it helps him. But one of the things we did successfully prevent was, and, and this is one of the more terrifying parts of your book, is to prevent, at least initially, the, these weapons from, we, ISIS did not lay hands on enough sarin to kill the entire population of Norway, which would have been extremely problematic. And early on in the book, with all Nusra surrounding one of these depots where these chemicals were stored, this is is really like all of a sudden on the table. So that that in itself is to, one of the things that it's nice to, when you read like a compact narrative like this, you're able to put a bunch of stuff in perspective. And I think that's one of the really important parts of, of actually sitting down and reading the book as opposed to watching it on the news or, or you know, watching a fictionalized movie that has nothing to do with it. So talk mm-hmm. about that, just that as you put this book together, you must have been kind of, your mind must have been boggled more than a few times. It was because my special window into all this stuff was it started early because back in 2011 2012 i was actually a a kind of a a middle eastern correspondent based in the u.s but traveled to the region with the state department or or on my own to 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 talk to people about arab spring because that was the big story at the time and i would go to these countries like jordan right next door and they were terrified about the possibility that bad guys in the region were going to come in and get these weapons. That was such a concern to them that they began to organize. They began to call on the United States and call on NATO and say, look, let's have meetings. Let's figure out what to do about this because we're all under threat. The Israelis got so scared, they started handing out gas masks to citizens in northern northern Israel. So this was a really big deal to them, and it almost happened. The only reason that ISIS or Al-Qaeda, which is this Al-Nusra affiliate of of Al-Qaeda, the only reason they didn't succeed in getting these weapons is because they didn't figure it out until it was too late. By late 2013, the the bulk of the weapons were gone. But up until that moment, there was just this this, opportunity for them to overrun a military base, to... um, to you know, to to overrun a convoy where, where chemical weapons are being hauled, and they tried to do it. They tried several times, but they didn't quite succeed. But this was the the nightmare scenario. This is the thing that everybody was most worried about. That if just even, you know, a couple of canisters or a few gallons of this stuff was was taken by ISIS or Al Qaeda, these are organizations that feel it's a religious duty, not just a you know a great opportunity, but something they feel compelled to do is to use a weapon of mass destruction as a terrorist weapon against the West. And the fact they didn't succeed is was just, we're incredibly lucky, but it's also just really fortunate that we managed to get most of those weapons out of the country before they could do something truly bad. And then later on, as, as the book shows, ISIS, having been thwarted in its initial ambition, decides, well, we'll just make our own. And so you begin, as you see this really... Um, very well organized, well funded program to create chemical weapons that ISIS made itself. They didn't get very far. They tried, but before they could really succeed, the United States uh, and its allies, you know, bombed the heck out of these facilities where they were trying to make chemical weapons, and they were destroyed. And so we kind of dodged a bullet there, but it was a close call again. 
another close call was the ship where these chemicals were stored. And this is one of the most interesting and fascinating parts of your, your narrative is this ship is of a variety called a Roro. So explain what that means and how that impacted the, the mission to destroy the chemicals when they were on this ship and what they found out afterwards. Right. Well, this, this margarita machine that we've talked about, this device that's going to destroy these chemicals, the, the initial plan was we're going to put it on land somewhere. We're going to put it in an airport or on a, at a port facility someplace. And it's you know going to be very stable, and we know how it works, so it's just going to be very easy to do. When they when it turned out that no country would accept these chemical weapons, like no country in the world, even poor countries like Albania, we tried to bribe them into letting us do it in their country. They wouldn't wouldn't touch it, and so we ended up with this Plan Z, which was destroy these weapons on a boat. And so the United States or the Pentagon looks around its fleet for for ships that could be used. And they, they offer this Roro, this, this kind of, it's, it's a cargo ship. It's, it's called Roro because it means roll on, roll off. You can drop down a ramp and you can drive tanks or big vehicles onto this, onto this ship and they could be taken off to a war zone or someplace in the world. So this was their best candidate for, for, a, for a boat for, for this chemical weapons destruction plant. The problem is... All cargo ships are configured to be stable. Like you don't move cargo around when, when boats are out to sea. You know, you put the cargo in the cargo hold and it stays there till you get to the dock on the other side and you unload it. This ship was different because you have millions of gallons of chemical weapons being moved around. You've got stuff going into these margarita machines and then you've got tons of waste coming out. And they're all being like piped and, and sent by tubes and pumps to various holding tanks and parts of the ship. And so the ship's stability is affected by this because the ship is getting more weight on the upper decks. And meanwhile, down below decks where the fuel is stored, the fuel supply is getting lower and lower because you're burning it off as you're going, as you're continuing your, your, your mission. And so the, the boat is literally becoming top heavy. And top heavy is not good if you're a boat at sea because that means that any change in conditions, a, a wave, you know, a storm, and suddenly you've 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 been flipped over, and it's happened many times at Roros before, and and the fear among the people doing this this chemical weapons destruction was that they were going to capsize in the middle of the Mediterranean as they're doing their mission with all that stuff, all that sarin precursor and chemical waste and all the stuff they had on board was going to flip over in the middle of the ocean, and, and you have this disaster on your hands on top of everything else, and they came close, and as the book reveals. When they were getting to the end of the mission, they were plotting how stable the ship was, and they calculated they had maybe two or three days left at the end of the end of the voyage before the, the, the ship reached this critical point where it wouldn't be stable anymore. After the voyage was over, they reassessed everything, reweighed their, their equipment, uh, took new measurements, and they figured out that up, oh, oops, we, we should have capsized, we should have lost stability about a week before the mission ended. So, in other words, it was a miracle that the book stayed that the boat stayed upright to finish the mission and to come back home again because it was literally on the knife's edge of being um, unstable and, and tipping over and, and and losing all these weapons in the middle of the ocean. And this is such a dramatic story, and yet at the time it was completely overshadowed 
by what was going on on the ground. And so it warranted almost no mention when, when and even had it, there not been a bunch of other stuff going on at the time, it might not be the kind of thing that Obama would want to say, well, we almost dumped, uh, <laughs> you know, 23 million deaths worth of sarin into the ocean, but we got away with it. Good lucky us. Yeah, exactly. And that's the reason nobody's heard about this, because, I mean, it happened. There were some, you know, page A23 stories in, in the Washington Post about this process. But, but you know, there were so many other things going on at the time, including this horrific situation in Syria and Iraq, where this terrorist group we now know as Islamic, Islamic State was kind of knocking off governments and taking control of cities. And so as the, the chemical weapons are being destroyed, you've got this ter you know, terrible prospect of a terrorist group you know, taking over a country. And that had never happened before in history. And so there's no wonder that the, the TV stations and the, all the news commentators were focused on the other things going on in Syria and, and not even paying attention to this minor miracle that was taking place out in the Mediterranean where this enormous stockpile of chemical weapons were, was being destroyed. And just to remind uh, listeners, nothing like this had ever happened in the history of disarmament in the world to take an entire weapon system out of a country unilaterally in the middle of a war and, and to destroy it. It has never taken place. And so it really is a piece of history to be celebrated. And yet at the time, it was completely overlooked and just overshadowed by events elsewhere. And, and thus it became, I guess, what might be called in the world of fiction, a secret history because people just didn't know it and it hadn't been advertised. Now, the a red line that we all associate with history is Obama's famous statement. The really important red line in your book is the one that Russia has because Russia's red line is that they want Assad in and he's not going to go out and he hasn't gone out yet bring us up to speed with what's happening right now on the ground in syria and what can be done and what we are doing about it as much as we know which is as as your book suggests is maybe we're, we're just seeing the tip of the syrian iceberg yeah it's a good point um the the syrian conflict goes on of course it's as depressing as ever the humanitarian crisis, the refugees, the destabilization of, of not just the region, but also of other parts of, of the world, because we know those refugees ended up going into Europe and, and over, you know, governments fell because of what, uh, because of, of the Syrian refugee problem. But, you know, the reason that Russia, that Syria remains this terrible problem in a way is because Russia and Iran, both countries really, wanted Assad to stay in power much more than the United States and other countries in the West wanted him to go. And so they were committed to doing whatever it took to keep Assad in power. It was a national security interest for them to, to do so. It was not really the same kind of national, secu national security interest for the United States and us. We wanted to help the Syrian people. We wanted to end the conflict and end the, dis dis uh, the, uh, the instability that was taking place in Syria but we weren't vested in the way that the Russians were and the, and the Iranians were. Because the Russians cared so much, Assad is still in power 10 years after the, the uprising began. I can remember in 2011, 2012, all the countries in the region, all the security and, and intelligence agencies were saying that Assad was finished. He was going to collapse any day. He was, he was done. 
And yet 10 years later, he survived and he survived because Russia wanted him to survive. And that's really where we are now. Assad has essentially won. Um, the country has been almost entirely overtaken by or reclaimed by Syrian forces. There's a little enclave in the northwest, this place called Idlib. It's one of the Syrian cities still controlled by rebels with, with Turkish backing. There's a small contingent of U.S. forces in the northeast and then down the south southeast. Um, but other than that, you know, with Russia's backing, Syria has won. But it's kind of a pyrrhic, a pyrrhic victory because Syria has, you know, essentially is left with a a shell of a country. It's, uh, you know, it's broken down. It's it's impoverished. Uh, its standard of living has been reduced to like to you know levels of you know, the, sort of the third world countries in Africa. Um, and right now, in fact, the economy is in, in a free fall because Lebanese economy next door is collapsing. So things are looking very dire there. The only good news about all this really is the fact that because things are so desperate in Syria, there may be a window. There may be finally an opportunity for the Biden administration to, to in, in discussion with the Russians and others in the region to come up with some kind of plan for stabilizing the region. Something that hopefully does not include the, you know, the continuation of the Assad regime, because that's completely unacceptable to all those rebels and opposition figures that, that fought against it for so long. So it, it might be naive to, to have this hope, but my personal hope is that in the next few months or maybe in a year or two, there'll be some kind of way to get out of this mess, some, some solution that at least allows Syrians to return home with hope that they won't be persecuted or uh, you know, or, or impoverished because of the fact that they took a position uh, opposing Assad earlier in the conflict. So crossing fingers that help that happen someday. The new book by Joby Warwick is Red Line. Thank you for joining me, Joby. My pleasure. Really enjoyed this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.